Back to the book of Romans we return this morning, to which I hope to return again for many months to come, if the Lord gives them to us. We uh, started last week with a sort of aerial view, a flyover of the book of Romans, to uh, take in the larger view. We uh, noted the key concept of the book of Romans is justification, that is how we are made right with God. We noticed some overall patterns in Romans in, in six parts. We, we noted this, Paul's greeting to the justified, the uh, need to be justified, the means to be justified, the transformation of the justified, the history of the justified, and the life of the justified. Well, now today we begin on the ground and just start our way into the forest of the book of Romans. We're going to start with the first tree we come to, the first few verses of Romans 1. We'll read the first four, in fact, but first let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, once again we come to your word and immediately recognize that we must have your grace and the same spirit who inspired these words to direct us in wisdom. For his ministry, now we pray to open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to conform our thoughts and our lives to your word more and more. For the glory of our great God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If the book of Romans is a great Hall, a great uh, ballroom of justification, then the portico, the, the porch, so to speak, by which we enter into that, that great hall is this, the gospel. And for Paul, it is more than just a transition, more than a mere gateway or entryway into justification. The gospel itself is glorious. This portico of the gospel is a place itself worthy to dwell in, even to which to return over and over and over again. It is a glorious doorway and a delightful one, filled with its own treasures and sweets. And that is precisely the way Paul treats the gospel of God, not only in this chapter, but in the entire book of Romans and, and in all of his writing and preaching. Yes, the letter to the Romans is chock full of theology, and it is some of the weightiest, thickest, we might say, thickest theology of the Bible. But that doesn't make it dry or dusty. Oh, we might be tempted to treat it that way, and we have, alas, sometimes been guilty of just that. 
And you need to be praying with me that over the months that we spend in this book, in Romans together, that we will not receive this vibrant and wonderful book as though it were a dust-covered tome from some forgotten and dull professor's library. Paul is a theologian par excellence. But he is a theologian whose blood runs warm from a lively and pulsating heart. When Paul speaks of the gospel, he doesn't mean merely a list of propositions. He means the gospel of God. Not only the gospel from God, but the gospel about God. And that is God. We will find, if the Spirit gives it to us, that theology, true Theology, theology rightly studied, leads to doxology. Doctrine leads to devotion. Study leads to praise. As C.S. Lewis put it about those who willingly take up real theological study with earnestness and vigor, the heart sings unbidden when they are working through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth, and a pencil in their hand. As I say, Paul begins here with the gospel. In fact, he uses that word four times in just these first several verses of the letter. But what exactly is the gospel? What is the gospel? We use words as Christians, we, we banter words around, we toss words about, and sometimes we forget what we're saying. And even worse, forget the beauty, and in this case, the breathtaking grandeur and wonder behind them. The word gospel means literally good news. Good news. So when we say, for instance, that the gospel must be proclaimed, what we are saying is that we must proclaim good news. But do we realize, brothers and sisters, do we, do we really grasp how good the good news really is? Do you and I, like Paul, do we, do we revel in the good news? Do we rejoice in the good news? Do we live out of the good news? Do we burn to tell others the good news? And the religious scene today, the goodness of the good news is becoming more and more evident. It is more clearly to be seen. Now look at all the religions of the world. And what do you see? You see a bunch of different religions spreading, in one form or another, a pretty similar message. What is it? Do these things, be this way, obey these rules, and things will be well with you. Boil down all of the world's religions save one, and that is what you get. With slight variations, you get works for salvation, or peace, or happiness, 
or whatever you want to call it. You get reconciliation with God based not on what he does for you, but on what you can do for him. Now here is the message of one of today's largest competing religions to women. The good news is, wear these sort of clothes, walk this many steps behind your husband, say these certain prayers at these certain times of the day, live this way according to these rules, and God will be pleased with you. And the really good news is that we won't maim, rape, burn, beat, or kill you if you do. Some good news. Other religions today are saying that good news is no news. The uh, no religion religion which has been rising in popularity these days, expressed so poignantly in the words of John Lennon that have played ad nauseum on the radio for decades now. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today that it is thought would be good news but if you will think carefully about it it really is quite the opposite living for today nothingness to follow that's not good news that's despair that's emptiness that's it's meaninglessness. The no religion religion leads nowhere. While it may seem like good news at first, in fact it is futile and leads only to more futility. Here's the good news. God. It is the gospel, Paul calls it, the the good news, the gospel of God. John Piper has recently coined the phrase, God is the gospel. And that is certainly true. The gospel is good news about God. On the other hand, the gospel, the truly good news, comes from the one God, from God, and belongs to God, and he gives it to us. For you young Linguistic scholars and rising linguistic scholars here, this is the debate between the objective and the subjective genitive. In other words, is this God's gospel or is it the gospel about God when Paul says the gospel of God? Well, you know, after studying the passage, I've, I've come at least to my own conclusion that the answer may well be yes. It's both. Even Paul himself, careful crafter of words that he is, that he may have meant to be vague. At any rate, either is true, biblically speaking. It is God's gospel, and it is the gospel about God. 
Here's the point. The good news, fundamentally, can be summed up in one three-letter word. God. Listen, when Paul looked on that man in Lystra, remember the one who had been crippled from birth, who had never walked out, not walked at all on his own, and Paul called out to him, Stand up straight on your feet. And the man leaped up, remember, and walked. Remember what the, what the, what the people yelled? The gods! The gods have come to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Zeus. They called Paul Hermes, remember? And they brought oxen and they brought garlands to sacrifice to them. What did Paul say? Stop! Essentially, stop! We bring you, what did he say? Good news. That's what he said. Could be translated the same way. We bring you literally the gospel. And then where does Paul begin? Turn, he says, turn from these worthless things and to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Or remember Paul in the Areopagus in Athens. Where does he begin with those philosophers? Ah, he says, I see here an altar you have inscribed to the unknown God. Him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. John Piper is right. God is the gospel. The ruler of heaven and earth who made them and controls them. He is the foundational stone and st of the structure of the Christian gospel. Well, so Paul begins the book of Romans. And by extension with us today, he begins with the gospel of God. Reminds me of Francis Schaeffer's line, the God who is there. He is real. He has created you and all things. And that is where the good news truly begins. Not by imagining that there's nothing to live or die for and no religion to. But by realizing that behind everything we see and everything we don't see is God. And therefore, is meaning. But there is more. There must be more. The gospel of God speaks of God's existence. Yes, is reality. And that is important. And, and meaning bestowing, of course it is. But there must be more because to know merely that God exists immediately plunges us into a dilemma. See, we have, we've offended him. We've broken his law and his commandments. We have separated ourselves from him. We have made an unbridgeable gulf between him and ourselves by our sin. And it, so it is not simply enough to say God and leave it at that. We can't find him. We, we grope around in the darkness, but we can't get to him. Who is the subject of the gospel? 
Yes, we already answered that question. It is God, but what about God? What is so good about the good news of God, particularly if because of our sin we're groping in the darkness and can't find Him? Ah, that is where the good news gets even gooder, even better. Here is the good, good news. God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, into the world. The gospel of God is the gospel of Christ. We might even put it this way. If the gospel is God, then Christianity is Christ. John Stott wrote in his book, Basic Christianity, The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All the rest is but circumference. Now, Paul has sometimes been called the father or the founder of Christianity. That, of course, is not true. Christ is. Others have said that Christianity amounts to a list of doctrines and dusty creeds and rules and regulations. And that is not true. Christianity, true Christianity, is not merely a set of convictions or a set of propositions or rules. True Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with someone. And to have a relationship with someone, of course, you have to know that person. You must know something about them, something of who they are, what they're like. And so Paul tells us three things about this one with whom we must have a relationship. Three things, at least three things, actually, about Christ. First, in verse 3, he calls Jesus God's Son. And you remember back in Matthew 16, that discussion between Jesus and his disciples. They're, they're talking, they're standing in the region of Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he, he asks them, Who do you say, or no, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples look at each other, no doubt, and back at Jesus. And one of them says, Well, I, I've heard people say that you're a... John the Baptist. Another one says, yeah, back when we were over in Gennesaret, I heard someone say that uh, you were Elijah. And another one says, Jeremiah is the lightest thing I've heard. And Jesus turns the question on them. But who do you say that I am? Now, when an important question was asked, 
of the disciples and needed answering, whose voice did you hear? Peter's. Usually, and sure enough, Simon Peter answers wonderfully, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What was the point? The point was that as great as those men were, as great as Elijah was and Jeremiah and John the Baptist, as great as they were, none of them even entered the same class with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus alone was the Son of the living God. What that meant was that Jesus was more than just a man. He is God. He is the divine Messiah. John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, ably demonstrates that when Paul speaks of Jesus here as God's Son, he is referring, in fact, to Jesus' eternal relationship with the Father. That relationship that precedes and supersedes his being made flesh. He calls up other passages in Paul's writing, even from this very letter. God did not spare his own son. Or again, God sent his own son to demonstrate that what Paul has here in mind is nothing less than the eternal relationship between father and son. In other words, to quote Murray, Jesus has no lower station than that of equality with the Father. In some, Jesus is God. Second thing Paul tells us about Christ is that he is man, genuinely man. He is flesh and blood, and to further prove his point, he even calls up Jesus' genealogy. He was descended from David, Paul writes, according to the flesh. Jesus was a real man, a real and genuine man, a human being. He had flesh You could walk up and touch Jesus. Jesus ate food. He walked with his disciples. He slept. If the disciples had possessed cameras at the time, they could have taken a picture of Jesus. During his earthly life, they could have, they they, they did, in fact. They walked with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. So he was and is God. And so he is still today in heaven, fully man and fully God. His mother and his foster father had relatives, ancestors who were really, genuinely, especially in his mother's case, ancestors of Jesus. Now, even the angel understood this. You remember this? He says to the shepherds on that first Christmas night, He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you, here it is again, I bring you what? The gospel. That's the word. I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. What is it? That unto you is born. Born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is God Jesus is man. God's son becomes a man. Now, this makes Jesus 
the most unique person who has ever walked the face of the earth or ever will. But there is more. He is God, Paul teaches. He is man. And third, he is risen. Paul says about Christ that he is resurrected from the dead. Verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's not as though, brothers and sisters, it's not as though Jesus lived a nice life, died an heroic death, and that was it. If that were the end of the story, we would be hopeless. We would be hopeless indeed. There would be nothing to talk about. There would be no reason whatsoever for you to be sitting here today. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and he did, why? And there's something remarkable, something fully unique, something marvelous, something life-changing, and allegiance-demanding about this person, Jesus. And of course, there is. And that is guaranteed forever by the fact of the resurrection. Robert Ingersoll, the famous agnostic, was no friend of Christianity. But he understood this. Christianity, he said, cannot live in peace with any other form of faith. If that religion be true, there is but one Savior, one inspired book, and but one little narrow path that leads to heaven. And Ingersoll was exactly right. And now he has the rest of eternity. If he did not repent of his agnosticism, he has the rest of eternity to ponder in torment just how right he was. See, the power of this letter to the Romans now, from the very first words, your all is demanded of you. Paul shoots straight and fast and from the hip. This is the gospel of Christ, the God-man attested to you by his resurrection from the dead. Take him or leave him as you will. But he is who he is. But for those who will receive him, this is good news. This is the gospel indeed. And it makes all the difference. Eternal difference. Would have made all the difference to these Christians who first received this letter. If they were not already, they soon would be suffering and feeling the sting of persecution, especially in Rome, where they lived 
hatred for Christians would come to a crescendo of suffering under Emperor Nero and would be sustained more or less for a few hundred years. But the gospel, this this gospel of God and his Christ would sustain and even thrill them, even in the days when the enemy seemed so strong. You've noticed perhaps the surge of interest these days in the history of the Second World War. Those who lived to see it and lived through it are becoming fewer these days, and it's a history that we don't want to lose. Well, imagine, if you will, this. American prisoners, emaciated, sick, daily dying, one of those terrible Nazi prison camps. Look through the barbed wire fence and see them sober, suffering, even as the enemy warmly dressed and, and fed and outwardly happy make their way around the outside of that camp. Then imagine that one day a shortwave radio is somehow smuggled into that camp. And each night in the darkness, the prisoners huddle around that radio and receive news. They follow the progress of the war. And then, then one day the captors notice something very strange. Though nothing has changed in their estimation, they see the prisoners inside the camp smiling. And smiling at them. In fact, the prisoners are actually even kind to them who persecute them. They see the prisoners though still undernourished and thin, some of them even dying, gleefully shaking hands with each other, even summoning the strength to throw things up in the air and let out a whoop. What has happened? What's made the difference? News. Good news. The enemy is defeated. The battle has been won. The lines of the enemy have fallen. Liberation is as good as theirs. It is simply a matter of time till their captors know it fully too. That's the difference that news makes. And soon freedom will be theirs completely. It's just a matter of a few miles till their liberators make freedom fully and completely theirs. Christians, we have the news. We have the good news. Our Savior has come. God has become a man. And the God-man has fought the battle. And he has conquered on the cross of all places. Even death then could not keep him captive. Couldn't hold him. He rose triumphantly from the grave. Christ has won, and he will bring victory to all who are in him by faith. The good news is not that there is no hell below us and above us only sky. The good news is that though hell is real and terrible, yet Christ reigns from heaven on high and leads a train to heaven. 
of former captives now saved, now liberated and bound for eternal glory. Where can you get such news? There's no shortwave radio to smuggle into the camp. You can't get this news from the newspaper that appears on your curb every morning. You're not going to get this news from the philosophers who are producing book after book of hopeless news. Only one place. The Gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is where the good news is found, my friends. Here, in one place, in the Holy Scriptures, and not only in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, in the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, and, yes, in Romans. Remember how the good news came to Augustine? Now you do the same. Take up and read. Amen.